It is such an honor to be here. I'm so grateful. I love this church. Love getting it to have it be kind of my church away from church. I got a lot I want to go through today, so I'm going to dive right in. Uh, I once was part of a series at a church on seasons of spiritual life, and I had to speak on spiritual winter. We lived in Chicago, which is a stupid place to live. And so I started with words I associate with winter. Death, ice, hypothermia, wind chill, death, snow, shoveling snow, shoveling more snow, buying a snowblower, death, salt trucks, black ice, dead batteries, frostbite, gangrene, thermal underwear, ice fishing, diminished mental capacity, seasonal affective disorder, recreational eating, death. These are all things I associate with winter. I know there are people who claim to love winter, but they're not healthy people. Uh, I have heard people say, but God made winter, it must be good. There is no mention of winter in the Bible before the fall. In Genesis, we read about trees that were bursting with fruit and people who did not even need to wear clothes. Wherever the Garden of Eden was, it was not Milwaukee in January. The Bible tells us that winter came because someone here in the middle of the country once did something very, very bad, and we've been paying for it ever since. But regardless of whatever you think about the meteorological season, I want to talk to you about a kind of winter of the soul, a kind of spiritual winter when everything seems like it's dying. And to do that through the life of a man named Job and walk through the three kinds of faith that it led Job through and talk to you about the question that God asked Job in this book. In fact, this book has the longest string of questions from God in all the Bible. And I want to explore with you how if you listen really closely to these questions, even the dead of your winter, and winter will come for you, you might actually meet God. So here we go. We'll walk through quite a lot of the text. Job chapter 1. In the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. They would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That was Job's regular custom. So, in the land of Uz, now we have to try to figure out where Uz was. In verse 3, we're told it's east. East of what? Well, where did the people of Israel live? This is not a trick question. Take a wild guess. Where did the people of Israel live? Israel would be the right answer. And so Job was someplace east of there. This is very tricky, you know, high-level stuff. Um, the point is that Job was not a part of Israel. And in this book, you'll see there's not references usually found in the Old Testament to the stories of Abraham and Jacob and Moses. And so you could put the setting like this in a long ago time in a faraway place. And the reason is the problems in this book are problems of the human race. This is the story of all of us. Winter comes to everybody. 
And in the beginning, everything is as we think it ought to be. Job's a pious man. He's so cautious spiritually, he even offers sacrifices for his children just in case. Maybe they sin. Maybe God is the kind of person that's easily offended. At this point in his life, Job has what Dallas Willard called the faith of propriety. The faith of propriety says life makes sense. If you do good, God will reward you. If you do bad, God will punish you. The amount of blessing you experience in life is directly proportional to the amount of obedience you offer, to the amount of faith you profess. And it's not bad, the faith of propriety, but it tends to be kind of superstitious, kind of formulaic. If I get bad news at work, must have not had my devotions today. If I raise my kids right, they will always make good decisions. If I go by Krispy Kreme, do they have Krispy Kreme in Oklahoma City? If I go by Krispy Kreme, uh, God, I will only get a donut if there's an empty parking space in front so I know it's your will that I get a donut. And sure enough, my sixth time around the block, there's an empty space right there in front of Krispy Kreme. That's the faith of propriety. As long as my life's going pretty well, this kind of faith's pretty adequate. But trouble is coming to us. Us will be a place where very, very bad things happen to a very good man. Us will be a place not just where suffering comes, but where it comes without warning and without explanation and the faith of propriety will be forever shattered. And we walk through here. Now in verse six, there's a radical shift in the scenery of this story. Um, the writer sets up the book of Job like a play and there's action going on in two different locations. So picture a, a theater with two stages where there's a lower stage and an upper stage. The lower stage is what's happening on earth, and the upper stage is what's happening in heaven in the book of Job. And this is crucial to the story. We'll come back to this. We, the readers, know what's going on on both stages, but the characters on earth do not. Job does not. All Job can see is what's happening on earth. He cannot see or hear what's taking place on the upper stage. But we go there now. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, there's no one on earth like him. Blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household, everything he has? Bless the work of his hands so his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to, his, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man yourself, himself, do not lay a finger. Very strange. Satan goes, Job loses his livestock, his wealth, his servants, his children, and we wait to see his response. Chapter 1, verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. 
The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. We're told Job grieves, he worships, he speaks words of blessing and praise, and all this he did not sin. Now in chapter two, we switch back to the upper stage. Then the Lord said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, no one on earth like him, blameless, upright, man who fears God, shuns evil, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones, he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Now from here on out, all of the action in the book will be down on the lower stage on earth. So we need to talk for a moment about what's going on in heaven in this strange book. And the action in heaven looks very hard to understand. You all know the series that you're in, which I love, is all about questions God asks. And Job is filled with questions of God. The very first question God asks in Job, he asks of Satan, where have you come from? Where have you been? And this is basically exactly the same question God asks of Adam that Marty talked about as part of the series. Adam, where are you? There's a beautiful idea here that God loves everybody, fallen people, even fallen angels. It's like he can't help himself. So he uses this question like a great therapist. Would you like to reflect on where you are? Would you like to come home? And of course, Satan's having none of that. This is an amazing question that God asked. Where have you been? Now, Satan goes on. A lot of people think that the key question in the book of Job is, where is God in suffering? And that's a real important question. We'll kind of touch on it some, but it's not the main question in Job. In Job, the main question, the key one, is asked on the upper stage where Satan says to God, does Job fear God, obey God, worship God for nothing, for no reason at all? In other words, what he's saying is, Job is devoted to you and worships you because it's in his self-interest, because you bless him, quid pro quo. You think Job loves you, God. The truth is, he loves you the way children love the ice cream man, the way the Kansas City Chiefs love Taylor Swift. You turn off the faucet of devotion and watch how fast... You turn off the faucet of blessing, watch how fast Job will turn off the faucet of devotion. Here's what's being expressed. This very contemporary idea in our day, Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene, the whole idea of a covenant of self-giving love, genuine altruism, it's a farce. The reality is everybody's looking out for number one, survival of the fittest, self, therefore suffering is meaninglessness. And God says, no. God says, the view stated here by Satan, which crops up over and over again in human history, including our day, is wrong. That at the core of reality is self-giving, self-sacrificing love. That's what's at stake in this book. So now Job gets hit with a second wave of suffering. I don't know what your winner is. I know it'll come. 
His body is covered with painful sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. He sits on an ash heap and scrapes them with pottery shards. This time, this time, this time, there are some kind of subtle differences in his response. This time he does not fall to the ground in worship. This time he does not say, may the name of the Lord be praised. He goes to sit on an ash heap at the town dump, maybe an act of grieving. Maybe uh, his condition is diagnosed as leprosy, so he's isolated. His wife says to him, curse God and die. This would not have cheered him up. So let's say a word about Mrs. Job for a minute, because she gets dumped on quite a lot in sermons. She too has lost all that she had. She too has lost all of her children. She will now have to give care to a horribly diseased husband until he dies, and then she will be left alone and destitute. So she gives voice to thoughts that have surely occurred to Job that would occur to any of us, would to me. And he doesn't do it, but notice what he says. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He's struggling to understand God now. Is God the kind of person who sends trouble? Is God really good? His old faith of propriety, do good stuff, good things that happen, do bad, that's not cutting it now. We're told at this point, after the second wave of suffering, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. After the first wave, in chapter 1, verse 22, it just says, in all this, Job did not sin. Now there's a little qualification. Job did not sin in what he said. In his heart, in his heart, in his heart, he's struggling. In chapter 2, we're told that Job's friends heard about all of his troubles and they set out to comfort him. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, Dadgum the Termite, they all come out there. I just made that last one up. That's not actually in the Bible. Uh, they set out from their homes and meet together to go sympathize with him and try to comfort him. And when they see him from a distance, they can hardly recognize him and they begin to weep aloud. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their head. They'd heard that it was bad. Nothing prepared them for this. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So pause here. Imagine for a moment sitting with somebody in silence for seven days. It was such a powerful act, it became part of Jewish life and community. To this day, they will speak of sitting Shiva, sitting sevens, literally. A friend will come and sit with one who mourns over a period of week. This is maybe the greatest example in the Bible of what Paul commands in the book of Romans. Mourn with those who mourn. He doesn't say fix them, doesn't say give them advice, just mourn with them. You know, crossings, when winter comes, pain, deep depression, anxiety, loss, family brokenness, grief. 
You need some friends who will sit in the ash heap with you. I hope you have some of those. I know crossings love to help. Well, finally, after seven days, Job speaks. And now it's no longer the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Text says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He has now moved into what Dallas calls the faith of desperation. Not the faith of propriety anymore. Now he's desperate. Now he's confused. Nothing makes sense. Strange thing about this is it looks a lot like no faith at all. And for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out a level of bitterness, confusion, sorrow, and anger toward God that is staggering, almost without precedent in all the Bible. Look at what he says. Job 6, verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. He charges God with shooting poison arrows at him. God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. People sometimes speak of the patience of Job. Not in this book. His words are incredibly impatient. How long? Why me? Show up. Speak up. Make it stop. Sometimes in suffering, we're, so, we're told, just accept it. Not in this book. Job accuses God, blames God, questions God, challenges God, clings to God. Though he slay me, Yet I will trust in him. Doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Nothing makes sense. He is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. That's the faith of desperation. And Job's friends can't stand this. They can't stand his anger at God. Sometimes religious people are that way. And for the next 30 chapters, they try to convince Job, Job, if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong, something bad to deserve it. That's the explanation. So find out what it is and repent. And the only thing you're allowed to say about God is that God's perfect because he's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants and he gets away with it because he's God. And Job is not buying it. You read through the book. Job doesn't claim to be perfect. He just states there has been no increase in his sin to explain the increase in his suffering. And his argument is, I will not capitulate to a capricious God, no matter how powerful that God is, if God is not good. If God is not good, I will stand on the side of goodness against a capricious and not good God. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. And in chapter 38, Job gets his wish. Then God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. What do you think that moment was like? Often in the Bible, a whirlwind, great invisible energy, power. Uh, in the prophet Jeremiah, when Elijah is taken up into heaven with a whirlwind at the day of Pentecost, a great rushing wind. Often this is an image of uh, God making his presence manifest, okay? God appears to Job. And then he begins to ask questions. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? 
Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you. You answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it where footings uh, set or laid its cornerstone? Notice this. Or laid its cornerstone or laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, we all notice when God appears, he doesn't seem to get around to answering Job's question of why. He does not tell Job what the writer told us about the upper stage scenes of chapter one, chapter two. Doesn't get into that at all. He just asks Job a bunch of questions Job can't answer. Now, why does God do this? At first, it looks kind of mean. When our oldest daughter was two, she would often torment us, especially with Nan- especially Nancy, with unanswerable questions about everything. Anybody ever have a little kid and they just drive you crazy with questions? And she would do this, it would drove Nancy nuts. So one time the three of us were in the car together and I got an idea and I started asking Laura questions. Hey, Laura, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Why does the sun shine? Where does the wind come from? What's another word for thesaurus? You have to think about that one for a minute. If you're in a spaceship traveling the speed of light and turn on the headlights, does anything happen? Laura, what about this? She got kind of trembly lower lip and her eyes got real moist. I looked over at Nancy, and Nancy was saying, yeah, keep going, John. You got her on the ropes. This is great. <laughs> and sometimes people think in Job that this is what's going on. God is just using questions to overwhelm Job uh, with Job's puny little intellect. I got the power. You don't. I know you don't. But it would be very strange, but it would be very strange if after 30-some chapters of Job courageously saying, I will not just capitulate to power, however great it is. I will not do that till my questions about goodness are answered. Be very strange if the writer of the book would end up just showing Job doing the very thing that he'd said for 30 some chapters he wasn't going to do. And there's something more, there's something wonderful. A lot of great scholars, Ellen Davis is one, Eleanor Stump is another, point out that God's questions, when you look at them closely, are indicating something about the kind of person God is and the kind of project God's working on that we live in. And this is the most important part, so I hope you hear this really clear. Like, when God began this great project of creation, it was so unspeakably wonderful that the morning stars sang together. Wouldn't you like to have heard that? And all the angels shout for joy. What kind of project would make every angel shout for joy? See, what's happening in these questions is Job is beginning to get a personal vision of who God is and what God is doing. Now, you have to decide what you think about this. Whose universe do you live in? Where is it all headed? Never been anything like this book. God has more questions that keep pointing to something unspeakably wonderful. Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain, a path for the thunderstorm, to water a land where nobody lives, an uninhabited land, to satisfy a desolate wasteland, make the wasteland sprout with grass? Now, the phrase that would jump out in Job's day is, water a place where nobody lives. In Israel, of course, life depended on rainfall. They would never waste water. Why would God water a land where nobody lives? 
Because, because, because God is a God of gratuitous goodness, he is good for no reason at all. He gives because he just loves to give. He delights in animals that are of no apparent use at all. They're not strategic. God, it says, makes the ostrich. She flaps her wings joyfully, even though she will never fly like the wings are going to do something. She leaves her eggs carelessly on the ground and doesn't even remember where she laid them. Remember what a cautious father Job is? Offer a sacrifice to my kids. Maybe they sin. Maybe God's easily offended. Ostrich doesn't even remember where her kids are. So goofy. Yet Job 39, 18. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horror and rider, she runs like the wind. I love the ostrich, God says. I made the behemoth, probably a hippo, useless to you. Ancient world considered it a chaos monster that had to be destroyed, not God. 40 verse 19, he ranks first among the works of God. I had my A game going that day, God says. He delights in the behemoth. Anybody here know what it's like to delight in a dog? or delight in a cat. You all know the difference. A dog says, you feed me, you pet me, you house me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says, you feed me, you pet me, you house me, you love me, I must be God. (laughs) And God loves every dog and God loves every cat. God gives his heart, see, to every creature in the universe individually. He delights in the wild ox that will never plow, the wild donkey that will never be tamed, the mountain goats that give birth in secret places that man will never see, the leviathan, probably the crocodile that nobody will ever eat. Nothing on earth is his equal. God honors Job by having with him the longest conversation he ever has with a human being in scripture. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Sir old Job. He is revealing to Job who has suffered so greatly the nature of his project while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Hey, Job, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Do you understand God's relationship to his creation is breathtakingly, heartbreakingly personal? My son just got his PhD in physics. His dissertation was on the release of gamma radiation from terrestrial lightning strikes. I don't even know what that means. God takes such delight in lightning that the bolts report into him for duty. Where to, sir? And he sends them on their way. And some of you take some gamma waves with you to release. More questions. Does the rain have a father? Uh Uh-huh. The rain has a father. From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost that comes from heaven? That would be God's womb. Even with human beings, if somebody invents or makes something that they dearly love, will say something like, that's my baby. That's my baby. Do you understand? This is a tiny reflection of the ultimate reality that God says about every creature, every aspect of his, that's my baby. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. Morning stars sing together. Angels shout for joy. That's where we live. This is not the language of some distant God who winds up the universe and lets it run. 
All these questions are God creating and caring for and giving to and delighting in stars and seas and weather and desert and creatures like a love-struck parent. Because God is gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving and he just gives for no reason at all. It's just his nature. And that's true especially for people, especially including his friend Job and including you in your winter. Job never does find out about the conversation in heaven because his story is your story. And on this earth, you and I live on the lower stage. We don't get to see that stage. But he finds out something better. He finds out who God is. Not just about God. He meets him in the whirlwind. He, he, here's what he says, Job 42.5. Now notice this. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Well, what does that mean? We know God doesn't have a body, so you can't see it like a body. The idea of seeing here means Job has had a direct experience with God. He's met him. He has encountered him. There's a movie years ago called The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever see The Sixth Sense? About a little boy has this horrible ability to see dead people. Turns out Bruce Willis, his therapist, is one of the dead people. Save you two hours if you haven't seen the movie. Um, and he's afraid if he tells his mom, she'll think he's a freak. And what she says to him several times is just, look at this face. Look at this face. And when he looks in her face, he knows he sees love. Now, that's not a philosophical argument, but it's knowledge. It's knowledge of a person. And what's happening here is God appears to Job and says, look at this face. Made all the morning stars sing together and all the angels shout for joy. And Job does, and that's enough, and that's sufficient. That's the faith of sufficiency. Faith of sufficiency is not getting delivered from desperate circumstances. It's coming to know in the moment of my crisis, of my need, of my pain, or my loss, God is here and God is enough. God will hold me up. God will see me through. My ears had heard. Now I've seen. God does this. Now, chapter 42 is a little epilogue. Got to just hit this briefly because it's so good. God says to Job's comforters, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now imagine their amazement. Job complains about God. They stick up for God. They know they're right. Then God shows up and says, no, 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 Job was right. God says, if Job will pray for you, I'll forgive you. So I imagine Job and his friends had a very interesting conversation. And then Job prays and God forgives. And then the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He had seven sons, three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Halpik. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, there's something here we would tend to miss, but it would jump out at ancient readers. 
The writer gives the names of Job's daughters, but not of his sons. In Hebrew genealogies, that was unheard of. You never see that. Boys don't get named, the girls do. Not just that, very strange names. As you might know, Hebrew names generally, very serious. They express some kind of character virtue or theological truth. Not these names. These three names are all about beauty. One of the girls is named Yamima. That's the word for a dove that was considered a particularly lovely color. Uh, Ketchi was their word for cinnamon, a prized spice. Anybody here ever go to Cinnabon? One of the great proofs for the existence of God in all the world is that <laughs> little Cinnabon. And then the third girl is Karen Hopek, which meant horn of eyeshadow, named her after makeup, like naming your daughter Estee Lauder or Maybelline. And not only does he give them these odd beauty-oriented names, he also gives them an inheritance. Again, in the ancient world, this male-dominated patriarchal world, a father with seven sons would never dream of leaving anything to a daughter because there might not be left up. Sons were strategic. They stayed in your family. That was like putting money in a 401k. Daughters were not. They're going to another family. That, you kiss that money goodbye. Why does the writer include this? Because now Job delights in and gives to the least strategic of creatures. He is gratuitously good and uncontrollably generous and irrationally loving and he just gives for no reason at all. Remind you of anybody? The central question in Job is, could a human being hold on to God and faith and love in the winter of his soul when everything was desperate and it didn't seem to pay off at all and one could and one did? Job did not see the upper stage. He did not know his faithfulness had meaning beyond his wildest dreams. He did not know that something cosmic and eternal was at stake in his little life. Sitting on an ash heap, scraping boils off his skin with shards of broken, discarded pots, broke, sick, mocked, confused, hopeless. Job's faithfulness in suffering was being used by God to vindicate God's whole adventure and covenant love. And Job's honesty and perseverance and stubbornness have been used now for thousands of years to inspire billions of people who live in the land of us. Hang on, keep going, don't let go, don't give up. And see, that's not just him, that's you and me. The writer wants to say to us, this is not just about Job, this is to each other. When a solution to your winner is impossible, transcendent meaning is still available. This is true, I promise you. Some of you are suffering today. Betrayal, prison, failure, divorce, heartbreak, bankrupt, lost a job, lost a child, lost your health, suicidal depression. Why? I don't know. How long will it last? I don't know. Does your response matter? More than you dream. There is an upper stage. There is a deeper meaning. There is a grander story. There is a brighter hope. There is a man on a cross. There is an empty tomb. 
There is a God so good he makes the stars to sing and the angels shout for joy. And the world is, whirlwind is coming and your story will yet be redeemed. So don't you give up. God, would you bless every person who sits now under the hearing of your word. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. That's it. Thank you.